Well, hello, 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 and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Broadcasting Network. This program is run with the assistance of the UTS Business School and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. When you think of Australian industries, your mind's eye is naturally drawn to the past. Holden's rolling off the production line, mint slices by the thousands from the Arnott's factory. But as the world changes and domestic manufacturing goes the way of the Commodore, state and federal governments are now searching for the next homegrown industry. So, what about video games? You've probably heard of Flappy Bird, and you've definitely heard of Fruit Ninja and Temple Run. Little did you know, those games were all developed in Australia, and despite their global popularity and literally billions of downloads, the domestic game development industry can't seem to get past the first level. In anticipation of this evening's budget, Tuesday, October 6th, the Australian video game industry have asked for a 30% refundable tax offset and a restored interactive games fund for video game development to be featured in the 2020-2021 federal budget. Joining us today to discuss this is Ron Curry, CEO of the Interactive Games and Entertainment Association, Australia's industry body for game developers. What's the Australian game developing landscape look like? Australia's got like a really robust game development sector. So whilst it looks great, you know, we and we punched above our weight for the number of developers we have in the country, we, we need more. You know, we need a, a much better a base, you know, Australia's got around, I don't know, 1,500 or so game developers. You look at Canada and they've got 27,000 and it's like really frustrating. So you're, why, why aren't we there? Why are we so far behind where somewhere like Canada is? One thing that you mention a lot, particularly in the surveys and the research that the Interactive Games and Entertainment Association conduct themselves, is that for an economy that is as strong and robust as Australia's and one that obviously over the last few years has pivoted greatly towards 21st century industries themselves, do you think it's it's particularly interesting that there hasn't been a big pivot towards game development? Yeah, so I'll just I'll give a, a quick snapshot of some context and then kind of unpack some of that. Is So the, the global industry is worth around, you know, depending you know, how you measure it, around 220 billion Australian dollars. Australia's contract represent about half a percent of that revenue. And that's not good enough. Okay. It's it's a really huge potential. And that's if we just say, if we only talk about games as entertainment, we see other countries around the world supporting the game um, development industry because they know that it's, you know, it's a weightless export. It's well-paid. There's, you know, it's really contributes to the economy. Yet we see in Australia, you know, the government are giving away money to the, the traditional screen sectors. And, you know, this week they gave, you know, 30% uh, tax offset to television, for example, and p- things like Netflix. You know, video games are punching way above the weight of those companies and could really contribute way more than, you know, television, for example. And that's culturally, um, that's creatively. But also when we look at how video games are expanding way outside of, you know, the traditional entertainment sector. So what are they doing for education? What do they do for enterprise? You know, what are they doing for health? You know, what are they doing for rehabilitation? And the way that we can take that skill set that's developed by making games, you know, that's where the skill set starts, 
and apply it right across society to answer lots of problems, deliver lots of solutions. And we believe, you know, um, create employment, you know, create export dollars, you know, create a really smart future economy. And according to the survey that yourself and the Interactive Games and Entertainment Association conducted this year, the Australian game industry generated $143.5 million in the 2018-2019 financial year. Now, that was up 21% since the last survey was conducted in 2017. Now, 71% of the studios surveyed at the time projected growth overall in the future, with 35% expecting significant growth in revenues in the coming financial year. Now, obviously, no one could have known what late 2019 and 2020 were going to throw our way. But has that growth factor been snuffed out by COVID-19 or are we still seeing some growth in the industry as obviously the pandemic forces more people into their homes? Um, It hasn't snuffed it out at all. And what we're seeing is um, video game developers still delivering on their craft. It's a little harder when we have teams that... um, working remotely from each other. You know, there's there's a lot of things that are missing in a creative process when you're not sitting next to somebody for those serendipitous moments or, hey, look at this, what do you think, or can you help here? But we're certainly seeing game development still thriving in Australia. And, you know, quite literally, as you and I have in this conversation, I've just jumped out from the middle of um, GCAP, which is a game developers conference that's run online this year. And, you know, it's, it's incredibly uh, exciting and buoyant, the game developers and how they're looking forward to the future and how, how strong the, the economy, and I mean the economy of game, game design and game development is at the moment. People are leaning into games. We know that. We know people are, are, are stuck at home. They're looking for games for connection. They're looking for them to relieve boredom. They're looking for them for engagement. And so that's all really important from a from a design and development point of view, if you've got product in the market at the moment, it's fantastic. You know, sales are doing well for the video games industry. A little tougher if you're in your development stage, but certainly we don't see the buoyancy decreasing over the next few years for game development. That could change a little bit based on you know the levers that we get to pull and the government may pull for us, but certainly you know the output is still there. And we'll get more into those levers that the government could be potentially pulling in in a little second. But I'd just like to ask, first of all, from your experience, obviously, with essentially a bird's eye view of the industry, what is the most common financial structure for an Australian developer? Are they generally using essentially their own funding, their own savings while they're in the development stage? You said that there isn't a huge amount of help uh, in terms of funding for game development while there are big tax exemption packages available for, as you've already mentioned, television and film production in Australia as well. How does the average developer build their game and how much of a financial burden is put on them personally while they're developing it? I think it's hard to, you know, to say who the average game developer is. There is a large cohort of independent game developers where we're getting some fantastic product from and they fund themselves. You know, um, Their parents fund them, their friends fund them. You know, they work on the projects while they do other work. A lot of them are working game design, but creating games for advertising, for example, or creating um, digital content for for enterprise and corporations. And that funds their ability to create the games, like their passion projects. There's the business side, and then that's supporting the creative side. Um, we do have states, different states and territories that have bespoke assistance 
for video games. It's not a lot of money, but there is some out there. So that's that's helpful. You know, we know South Australia has just announced this week a, a rebate scheme, a 10% rebate scheme, which is not that it's an injection of funds, but it actually lets you offset some of the money you're spending, which is always good. It's, it's at the other end, but, it, it, you know, at least it's um, a bit of a a carrot, I guess, to create video games. There is some investment around. There, there's people like Tencent or, or VCs who are putting money into companies. And, you know, we see companies like League of Geeks who have just created a, a publishing deal or a, a partnership with a publisher, few and far between. And it's also, you know, if you want to attract, and I know I keep going back to this issue, but if you want to attract VCs, if you want to attract investment, you need that that signal of confidence that perhaps a government would give. You know, if you look into Canada and you want to invest money there in games, you know that the government is behind it, that the provincial governments are behind it, their Commonwealth governments behind it, the same if you go to the UK. And that gives just that little bit of more comfort, I guess, to bankers and to financiers and VCs and publishers that it's a serious business and it's worth investing in. And in terms of the major cross-disciplinary markets for video game application, you've already mentioned health and education as being two key markets. What are some of the fields that are most applicable or most desirable for game developers? Look, there's a wide range of opportunities. You know, they may range from uh, mining companies. How do we how do we train people to drive uh, large vehicles to operate mining equipment to to do certain um, geological ex- exploration, that training is delivered via a video game or a simulation. We have games that that is being used by Alzheimer's Australia um, to get people into a position where they understand what it's like for somebody to live with Alzheimer's. So it's not teaching you to deal with an Alzheimer's sufferer, it's putting you in their shoes, it's creating that empathy uh, around someone with Alzheimer's. People like Cochlear are using games to help people um, to learn to enjoy music again. So that quality of life um, that, that they may be missing once they have an implant. So it's quite a wide range. And I think it's only um, boundaries of your imagination. You know, we, we have police forces um, learning how to use tasers um, via, via video games, for example. Um, we have you know, the Victorian government who reach out to video games and say, we have a problem with cues in emergency wards. Can you simulate this in a game and help us figure out how to solve this problem? So there's, to me, there's an infinite number of ways that those skills that we're using for game design and game development can be used in, in the broader community. And you mentioned, obviously, older Australians. Now, from your own research, 42% of Australians aged over 65 play video games, and it's actually the fastest growing cohort or demographic. So do you think that what we understand as a game is changing. Obviously, you've mentioned that the simulations in hospitals in order to determine how to best manage a queue in an ER doesn't necessarily seem like your conventional video game or what people would assume would be a conventional video game. So is that part of growing the industry? Is changing that perception of what a game is? It's not just a a novelty, a way to kill time or relax anymore it's also got these real world applications do you think that's something that needs to be pressed absolutely it needs to be pressed and this is quite often where we start our conversation with government around the potential of video games and when we talk about you're talking about you know older australians 
you know, we know that play teaches. We we know that's how we learn. We know how, you know, if we've got a dog and a pup, the pup learns from playing with the older dog, you know, where those boundaries are. We know with our own children that when we play, we're teaching them. And the same goes with video games. You know, if if you have someone who's perhaps a little bit digitally challenged and you introduce them to an online game, and particularly if you say, here's a game that you're used to, you, you know how to play Scrabble. How about we introduce you to an online version or digital version of Scrabble? Um, and when there's that comfort level, you say, well, you know what? You're comfortable about being online with Scrabble. How about we get you comfortable being online with your banking or your superannuation or ordering you know, via Woolworths online. And so it, it, using that gateway, I guess, of, of play uh, into a much wider world, that digital world, that's one side of it. You know, the other side, from a, I guess, from a prevention point of view, we, we did some work with uh, Neuroscience Australia a while ago where they were using Dance Dance Revolution uh, with senior citizens to teach them to lift their feet when they walk. One of the ways a lot of Australians end up in a nursing home is with a broken hip. And they get broken hip because they fall. They fall largely because they trip and they're not lifting their feet. So the trick with the dance dance revolution is actually teaching them to lift their feet as they get older. And you do that by taking a game that's quite popular, but changing the music, changing the tempo, making it bespoke for the person who's using it. And it's transitional. So they're or iterative that they start very slowly until after a while of using it, the, the fact of lifting your feet becomes a habit. And again, that's what plays about. It's teaching us ways, new ways of doing things, whether it's riding a bike, swimming, you know, jumping on a trampoline, or, or in fact, you know, lifting your feet. And Dance Dance Revolution, obviously an enormous globally recognised title. Now, how important is it when we're moving forward and finding new avenues to use video games domestically that we make sure that the games that we are applying to domestic purposes have been domestically produced? Is it difficult at the moment to essentially establish a pipeline of consistent Australian produced and developed video games that have domestic applications are we getting to a point where that's viable or are we still having to shop overseas in order to get these big licenses yeah i'm not sure you know the the people who are procuring you know if government's procuring these sort of things or hospitals whatever i'm not sure they they understand there's a local industry yet um and i think that's because you know it still is quite a small industry uh and that's what we need them to recognize if if we're going to um engage with a game that delivers whatever outcome we want we want them to look here first. We want them to look into Australia. How do they invest the money here into the product that then allows the companies they're investing in to expand, to grow and, and employ, employ more people, train more people and create, you know, great product, whether it's entertainment product or whether it's product that's delivering some other good. Now, in your pre-budget submission to the Australian government, yourself and the IGA have asked for a 30% refundable tax offset and a restored interactive games fund for game development. We've already mentioned that film production, television production, they both receive a variety of tax breaks that allow the industry to essentially profit in Australia and operate unimpeded. How big a break would a tax exemption potentially be for the Australian video game industry? I think for for the industry that exists now, as it is today, it would be okay, it would be good. But what that sort of tax break 
is or the tax offset is meant to do is to um, encourage and incentivize large development studios to move into Australia. These are development studios that you know commit to spend tens of millions of dollars or more, hundreds of millions of dollars once they get to this country. Now, if we look at you know one studio in um, in in Vancouver uh, employs I think it's you know three or four thousand game developers in one studio. That's twice what we employ right across the country here. So by bringing uh, by by creating a an environment that attracts these larger studios. So studios attract studios. So once one or two get here, you know, history shows that they will be followed by, by other studios. And it, that then starts to give us that full ecosystem that I started to talk about at the beginning of the conversation. We have large AAA studios here that employ lots of people. They train lots of people. They take the graduates who are coming out of at universities and give them a training ground that we don't have at the moment. And then they allow them to mature through their businesses, leave and create their own businesses in Australia. What it also does, it attracts talent back to the country. So at the moment, you know, if, if I'm a, an Australian developer who's based in a studio overseas and, you know, and I'm quite experienced and I want to get moved back to Australia, I don't have very many options. And I might have one option or two options, but that's a huge risk to move my family and myself and everything back to Australia. What if, what if it doesn't work with that company? When we have a number of large companies here and a number of middle-sized companies, we all of a sudden have an ability to attract talent and keep talent. And that's something that does kill the industry is, is losing that senior talent. Now, if, if you want to progress greatly in game development, sadly, for lots of people, that means leaving Australia. Mm. So is, is a brain drain a real issue at the moment where we have young Australian developers who realise that their skills can be better paid elsewhere. Is that really the crux of the issue, that if you're a good enough game developer to sell your skills to the market, that you're naturally going to go to a country where your skills are better recognised? Yeah, and that, that, that is, it's not the only problem, but it's certainly a big problem. You know, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, engaging with my counterparts um, it, it, across Europe and in North America. And uh, you know, they often lament that they're struggling to get enough game developers to fill the positions in their countries and their government are taking active steps to fix their immigration issues so it makes it easy for developers to enter their country. Now, we have an opposite problem where, we're, you know, it's killing us that we're losing all this talent to the other countries. And then on top of that, it's so difficult to bring people into this country with our, you know, visa scheme here. Because, again, there's no recognition across any of the... Um, visa schemes for game development and that's another issue we're working through it's particularly interesting the way that many other industries over the pandemic have kind of come out of this crucible very different to how they entered it now video games could arguably go one of two ways at least if there isn't as much help from the government going forward but after obviously the last few months everything that you've seen and heard where do you think the industry is going in the next two to three years? Do you think that it will be maybe an underdog story in Australia's road to recovery? Or do you feel that it'll take the rest of the economy to pick up again before video games start maybe getting at least the financial recognition they deserve? That's a tough question. Look, I, video games will continue to do what they're doing. 
You know, we, we often say, well, what's going to happen if the government don't give us support and we don't get the visas? Well, we'll just keep creating games. You know, that, that's, that's kind of the mantra. We'll just keep doing what we're doing and we'll keep doing it well. The thing is, though, we'll just be doing it as a very small, you know, niche industry, not delivering the potential we could to the, to the Australian economy and this, you know, both financially and intellectually. Um, that's, that's the issue. I'm not sure where the government's mind will turn towards who it should support. It's very easy for them to support um, TV and film. It's sexy. You know, we've had politicians say to us, well, you know, we get to stand up, you know, next to, you know, movie stars when we give away funding. Could you maybe deliver a movie star or two for us to stand next to? Well, no, that's, that's not what we do. You know, and that sounds like a cynical statement, but it's actually been made, you know, by politicians. And they said, you know, be re- you know, be realistic, Ron. It's it's easy for us to get up and sell a policy announcement around television and culture and you know, and than it is to stand up and talk about um, video games. Now, video games is an art, it's a craft, but it's also a, an incredibly good business. Do you think those shackles are actually quite hard to break preconceived notions about not only video games themselves, but the people who work in that industry, almost like a schoolyard mentality to the game development industry that still potentially exists, where it's not seen as, as, as you've said yourself, as sexy as, as film or TV? Uh, I think you're right in cer- certain quarters, but it's amazing that, you know, every opportunity we have to sit down with a government inquiry who, that wants to talk about the screen industry or, or funding or the creative industry. Every single one of them we've sat down with over the last three or four years has come back with a recommendation that, yes, the government should support video games. Once they sit down and listen to the, the I guess, the debunking story, they listen to the economics, they look at the potential, they're all like, hmm, don't know why we haven't done this. And, you know, we've got a, like I said, we've got a list of five or six you know, government inquiries. So this is, you know, not just the opposition, but the government as well, saying, yes, this should be supported. So it's still a cultural issue. You know, it's it's still getting to, you know, the trade minister, the, the, the prime minister, the treasurer, the arts minister, and convincing them what I guess a lot of other people in their party knows. Well, you've heard it in the 1989 Kevin Costner-led hit film Field of Dreams, and now you'll hear it again. Build it and they will come. As Ron made clear, you can't get the silicon without the valley. And with the video game development industry looking to cash in on the tax exemptions and funding plans offered to domestic film and television, our fledgling development industry has ample room to grow. That's about it for today's show. Make sure to catch the full episode online wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, make sure to stay safe out there. I've been your host, Max Tillman. I'll see you again next week.